Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are joined by Park Ranger Nick Sacco. Nick is a ranger at the Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site in St. Louis, Missouri. Here he gives tours of Grant's St. Louis home, Whitehaven. He also gives virtual presentations, teacher workshops, speaking engagements, and school visits. He has written four peer-reviewed journal articles, including I Was Never an Abolitionist, Ulysses S. Grant in Slavery, 1854 to 1863. This article was published by the Journal of the Civil War Era in September of 2019. Nick joins me today to talk about Grant's presidency, the good and the bad, as well as the legacy. I hope you enjoy this discussion and learn something about the president. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Thank you. My pleasure, Andy. Really happy to be here and uh, ready to jump into it. Always great to have a park ranger to talk to. <laughs> Definitely. It's a, it's a unique way to make a living. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just great because I get to talk about history uh, for a living and get to meet people from all over the world. So uh, it's pretty fun most of the time. Yeah. Always a great way to make a living with history when you can when you can manage those two. Right. So maybe that's a good place we can jump in. So what is it like being at Whitehaven all the time in St. Louis and being around Grant, walking where he walked and living where he lived? Has that had an impact on how you view him? I certainly think so. You know, I, uh, I grew up studying history and, and as mentioned, I got a degree in history, both undergrad and master's degrees in history. So I've always had a, a great appreciation of and a great interest in the past, but uh, it wasn't until I had an internship at Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site. About 12 years ago, I had an internship while I was still an undergrad. And uh, it just sort of, it, you know, it's one thing to read a book, but it's another to see history with your own two eyes. And I think what really made it tangible for me uh, was when they gave me a key. They give you a key to uh, unlock and lock the Whitehaven estate every day. And so it's just like, you know, I have the key to Grant's house on my keychain, you know, and just sort of thinking it in that way really kind of kind of brings it home for me and really makes it tangible and real, uh, you know. So I think that really, from a very early part of my time with the National Park Service, that really brought it home for me. Uh, so I've been full time with the Park Service at Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site for uh, about eight years at this point. Uh, I've worked at a couple other national park units on a temporary basis as well. And so I think uh, I'm fascinated by the challenges of of what many of us call public history. So this idea of talking about history and communicating uh, historical scholarship to people of all different walks of life. Uh, You know, in an academic setting, you might get 60 minutes to do a lecture or you might get a few hundred pages to write a book, but within the space of public history, uh, it's about summarizing complex history in a tweet uh, or a 10 minute introduction or just these little smaller spaces like a a commemorative marker or uh, something to that effect. And so thinking about the ways that people that are not necessarily, uh, you know, they're not necessarily interacting with history on a daily basis. They don't come from a history background. So how do we meet people where they are so they make history relevant 
and to have people better appreciate the role of history in today's world. These are some of the central challenges that I think about in my job, uh, because, you know, think about somebody who might be really uh, into science, you know, they, they're really they're really knowledgeable about science or what have you, but maybe they don't work in the science world. Maybe they get into science by watching a National Geographic documentary or going to a science museum or going to an aquarium or something like that. Uh, and so I, I want to reach those people that don't necessarily work in the history world but are interested in history. Mm -hmm. uh, so that those are some of the things that I think about. And certainly being at the Whitehaven Estate, you know, it's just it's a fascinating place for me because it's not so much about Grant as general and president, although we talk about those things. It's really about Grant the person, you know, the right. qualities that define Grant as a person and the people around him when he lived in St. Louis and thinking about the ways those people shaped Grant's life as well. Oh, yeah, that, that's fantastic. And, and you mentioned Whitehaven. So Whitehaven obviously was a place, as you've said, of slavery. And today we're going to be focusing on his presidency. Uh, but if we jump back in the story a little bit, we have slavery at Whitehaven, right? Colonel Dent, the Dent family. Uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? You talked about trying to welcome people to different walks, and I'm sure that's a challenge. And it's it's a little bit of a challenge on uh, Grant's record as well. So Definitely. Uh, you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So uh, the Whitehaven estate in St. Louis uh, was a, was initially the, the real the real beginning of it is that it is the childhood home of Julia Dent Grant, Ulysses S. Grant's wife. So the Dent family owned the property before the Civil War, and Julia's father, Frederick Dent, uh, was the one that uh, you know, sort of accumulated a large amount of property. So the Whitehaven estate, the house itself is about 2,500 square feet. So it's a decent sized house. It's not like the plantation homes you'd see in like, you know, Louisiana or Mississippi, but it was 850 acres of property, so it was a very large property, and the Dent family did enslave upwards of 30 uh, African Americans on the property. And so, for Ulysses S. Grant, uh, he meets Julia initially while stationed in St. Louis at Jefferson Barracks, which is a, a military post about five miles from the Whitehaven estate. Now, Jefferson Barracks, before the Civil War, is one of the largest posts in the country. So. Um, families like the Dent family, uh, they regularly hosted soldiers from Jefferson Barracks and uh, attended balls and dances at Jefferson Barracks. And so Grant kind of finds himself within this circle, this network of people in St. Louis that uh, regularly visit Jefferson Barracks. And it also turns out that um, the, Grant had a, a, one of his best friends at West Point was Frederick Dent Jr., who was uh, uh, one of Julia's brothers and a cadet at West Point who also invited Grant to go to Whitehaven. So Grant eventually finds himself at the home. He meets Julia. They fall in love. Uh, they will get married in downtown St. Louis. And from 1854 to 59, Grant actually left the army and he tried his hand at farming at Whitehaven. So for that five-year period, right before the Civil War, he is living uh, with his wife and children and his in-laws, for better or worse, at the Whitehaven estate. So Grant, having grown up and born and raised in Ohio to an anti-slavery family, uh, he's marrying into a slaveholding family. It's not all that different from uh, Abraham Lincoln marrying into the Todd family in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And so Grant uh, has his own relationship with slavery, and, and sort of the short version of it is that Grant 
did enslave a man named William Jones for part of the time that he was at Whitehaven. Uh, now, Grant does end up freeing William Jones in 1859. So um, that manumission paper that Grant signs, it's the only document we have to really tell us about Grant uh, in, his in his relationship with slavery. Uh, however, having said that, um, there are some letters that Grant writes during his time in St. Louis, and there's different actions that can be analyzed. And other people wrote about Grant's time in St. Louis as well. So kind of based on all of that, uh, my general argument is that uh, while Grant was certainly not a fire eater, he was not one of these you know, fire eating secessionists that is willing to break up the union over slavery. That's, that's not necessarily Grant's position, but I would put him in the camp of a Northern Democrat. Um, a Northern Democrat like James Buchanan, who's elected president in 1856, or, Steve, or Senator Stephen Douglas from Illinois, somebody that uh, is concerned about extremism in the South, but also extreme anti-slavery sentiment in the North, somebody who's trying to be moderate politically, and uh, somebody who would rather let the settlers of new territories determine slavery for themselves, whether or not they wanted to be a slave state. Mm -hmm. as opposed to legislation from Washington, D.C. So they want sort of this states' rights approach to slavery in new Western territories. Now, uh, of course, that, that idea is not going to work out. But I think when Grant is in St. Louis, I think to a certain extent, he is trying to emulate his father-in-law's lifestyle by being at the Whitehaven Plantation. And, I, and he even admits in his memoirs that Grant said initially when he read about Abraham Lincoln in the newspapers, he disagreed with Lincoln. He thought that Lincoln was wrong when he talked about the nation not being able to withstand a half slave and half free uh, uh, conflict between the two sections. Grant thought that compromises could be established on slavery and that uh, a civil war could be averted. So um, Grant is going to evolve in those thoughts. And I'm sure we'll talk about that within the context of Grant's presidency. But I don't think he was there in the 1850s. I don't think he was uh, somebody who uh, held strong anti-slavery beliefs in the 1850s while in St. Louis. Right. Yeah, so that, that is a great segue. So one of my first questions pertaining to his presidency has to do with that. So as you mentioned, his views on African-Americans, on slavery changes throughout his life. Comes from an abolitionist home, as you just talked about. Uh, he lives at Whitehaven, a place of slavery. But when he becomes president, he passes the 15th Amendment, secures voting rights for African-American men. He passes the Civil Rights Act of 1875. He passes several enforcement acts, breaks up the Ku Klux Klan. So do you think that this could have to do with possibly trying to correct his past mistakes with Willie Jones and with slavery? Do you think that was in his mind when he became president? And why do you think his views on African-Americans and slavery changed? Did it have to do with the Civil War? Yes, I think probably more than any sort of personal motivations for Grant, I think he's strongly shaped by the, uh, the consequences of the American Civil War. Initially, at the beginning of the war, Grant views, uh, views enslaved African Americans as uh, potentially causing a lot of conflict and chaos and even a potential race war. Uh, one fear of Grant is that when the Civil War breaks out, he believes that enslaved people uh, would, would kind of lead a slave revolt, there would be even possibly a race war in the South. And so Grant, again, sort of being a Northern Democrat, 
Um, he views the war as one purely to maintain the union. He does not want slavery to be touched. He wants the Constitution preserved as it is, rather than thinking of dramatic changes to uh, the, the founding document or changes to American governance. However, I think Grant is genuinely moved by the fact that enslaved people from the very beginning are running away to US military lines. They're not only seeking refuge, but they're offering intelligence to the military. Mm -hmm. uh, black men in particular are offering, they're wanting to serve in the military. And I think as the war continues, Grant really understands that um, African-Americans are really allies in this fight against the Confederacy. Uh, Grant, during the war itself, by 1863, he'll go on to say that uh, that he believed that Black men would serve very capably as soldiers in the Army, that he was anxious to have them enlisted in the Army. And by the end of the war, one out of seven troops in Grant's uh, forces is African-American. And so, uh, and I think another, a, a good representation of Grant's evolution is that after President Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, the Confederate Congress in Richmond, Virginia, uh, issues a resolution, they issue this whole plan that any black troops or any free black residents that are caught on the battlefield, um, they would be sold back into slavery. They would not be considered soldiers uh, deserving of uh, prisoner of war status. They were to be sold back into slavery. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg, General Lee's troops are capturing fleet free black residents in the Gettysburg area and selling them back into slavery, mm -hmm. uh, even if they were born free in Pennsylvania. And Grant halts prisoner of war exchanges in part because of that. Uh, he says that if black troops are not going to be treated the same as white troops, he would end prisoner of war exchanges on those grounds. And so Brooke Simpson, who is, uh, uh, to me, probably the preeminent Grant scholar in the country, he makes this very powerful argument that by the, uh, you know, by 1863, for Grant, it's much less about the color of one's skin and about the color of their uniform. Mm. So I think Grant's presidential actions in supporting civil rights for African Americans are strongly connected to uh, his belief that they had earned the rights of citizenship and that they were capable of participating in elections uh, because of their service to the Union during the Civil War. And uh, to a certain extent, there probably are some pragmatic thoughts about this, too, because the Republican Party uh, does want support in the South. They don't want to be a purely sectional country. And some of the strongest support for the Republican Party is coming from Black Southerners. So Grant views Black Southerners as the most loyal element of the South during the Reconstruction era. And to get the uh, to the South reconstructed and back to the Union and then trying to create a Union that will uh, be enduring enough not to have a civil war in the future, Black Americans and particularly Black Southerners are central to that vision. So um, I really think that for Grant, it, it's what happens during the war and this war that gradually involves into a war to end slavery that, that makes a, a lasting impression on him. And you mentioned Reconstruction there. So obviously Lincoln's assassinated, Andrew Johnson takes over, and then Ulysses becomes president. He does a lot to move forward civil rights, but his predecessors then kind of backtrack a bit, right? And we see Reconstruction short of fail. People do talk about electing Grant for a third term, and he, and he kind of toys with the idea. 
Do you think if he had run for a third term, reconstruction may have been more effective and we would see a difference in America today? It's a great what if question of history. And, uh, you know, if, if Ulysses S. Grant wins election in 1880 and, and takes uh, the oath of office to become, uh, you know, to have a third term in office, it's interesting to think about what Grant would have done. But to be honest, I, I think he would have been greatly restricted in his ability to do much. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that the Congress that had taken office in 1881 was very bitterly divided. Uh, to a certain extent, it really, you know, we're, we're, we're talking here in 2022 and the Congress that we have in 2022 in terms of its party loyalties was not that different from the one that took office in 1881. Uh, there was an exact equal number of senators. There were 37 Republicans and 37 Democrats in the Senate in 1881. Uh, slight advantage for Grant's party, the Republicans in the House of Representatives. But this is a very fragile coalition. And when you have a very slim majority in Congress, there's not much room for error. And I think many, I should say at least white Americans, were not anxious to go back to a military style rule in the South. Um, this one of the one of the aspects of Reconstruction during Grant's presidency is that you know there is a military presence that's trying to ensure that. Uh, African-Americans are protected in their civil rights and that groups like the Ku Klux Klan are not committing acts of violence. But by 1877, when Grant leaves the White House, the, the appetite for that sort of intervention in Southern politics has really gone by the wayside. Mm -hmm. uh, I think many white Americans and white Northerners really welcomed this idea of sort of leaving the South to their own devices by the time Grant left office. So Grant uh, does speak a little bit after his presidency, and he talks about this idea of, of trying to rally around uh, enforcing the 15th Amendment and working to ensure that African-Americans were still able to vote at the polls. Uh, but I think this bitterly divided Congress would not have really been open to a lot of particularly innovative ideas. I think anything that, that was just this, uh, you know, too radical in the slightest would have probably been nixed by Congress. So I think Grant would have really had uh, his hand, you know, his, at least one hand tied behind his back. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, it is interesting to think about Grant possibly trying to rally Congress to pass a newer Civil Rights Act during a third term or a Voting Rights Act or something to that extent. I would also mention, too, that the Supreme Court would have been against Grant and this count as well. Uh, in 1883, so that would have been during this, this hypothetical third term in office, the Supreme Court actually uh, declared the Civil Rights Act of 1875 unconstitutional. So the Civil Rights Act of 1875, very briefly, um, it outlawed racial discrimination in public spaces like theaters, uh, uh, transportation, hotels, and it outlawed racial discrimination in, uh, in segregation in cemeteries and in jury service. This is a very far-reaching piece of legislation. But the Supreme Court in 1883 says, no, you can't do that. The government cannot tell a private business uh, to who they can patronize. If a, if a private business wanted to keep Black patrons from shopping at their store, the federal government had no right to enforce that. Uh, so that's an argument you'll see in the 1950s and 60s as well. But that uh, so this third term, we're going to see that Supreme Court 
doing things like this to really weaken the federal government's ability to enforce civil rights. So it, it would have been a really, really difficult job for Grant, I think. That's a great answer to a hypothetical. I know sometimes hypotheticals are difficult yeah. history, but so Grant has this complicated relation with African-Americans, and it's obviously a mark on his record. And another mark on his record comes with his relationship with Native Americans during his presidency. So how do you view his policies as a president towards Native Americans? Do you feel, as some people do, that he had good intentions as a president that kind of went awry? Or do you think he was intentional in trying to commit, as you said, a cultural genocide? How do you feel his policies towards Native Americans were? Yeah, it's a very complicated subject. And I, I think, I really do believe that Grant sincerely desired change. Uh, he, he says at the beginning of his presidency that previous policies and previous presidential administrations had done indigenous people wrong and that they had been uh, mistreated and it led to wars and murder and death and disease. And so I genuinely believe that he approaches uh, Indian policy and he wants to he wants to make genuine reform to the system. I think the real challenge for Grant is that uh, there are just some embedded assumptions with within him and really embedded assumptions among many white Americans about uh, the West. I think one of the central goals of Grant's administration is that he's trying to get the economy back up and running again. He wants the United States to prosper and grow, and he, want, he wants people going back to work, right? And so central to this goal is westward expansion. So we think about, like during the Civil War, President Lincoln is going to pass the Homestead Act in 1862. And on the one hand, the Homestead Act is going to make it very easy and affordable for settlers from the East to buy tracts of land, 160 acre tracts of land in the West to develop those resources, to build farms, to build communities, and essentially make the West into a, you know, a version of what you'd see east of the Mississippi River. But within that Homestead Act, you're also seeing the uh, forced removal of tribes from their lands. You're seeing broken treaties. You're seeing uh, not much of the consideration of the rights and the uh, responsibilities of the government to the various tribes and the agreements that had been made with them in the past. And I just think that's what we see during Grant's presidency is that um, and I believe that Grant has sort of a paternalistic view towards Native Americans and that he believed that um, they, they in, in contrast to African-Americans, uh, Native Americans were not necessarily ready for the rights of citizenship and voting because their allegiances were with their tribes. And so the tribes and this idea of tribal sovereignty is seen as uh, somewhat of a threat to the U.S. government. Um, the U.S. government wants indigenous people to learn English. They want them to become Christianized. They want them to learn how to farm rather than being hunter-gatherers. And they want, to, they want to destroy tribal sovereignty. They want indigenous people to have their ultimate loyalty to the U.S. government. So Grant uh, is going to, unfortunately, is going to see some of the worst conflicts between the military and the tribes during his presidency, because on the one hand, while some tribes did embrace uh, Grant's policies and in in these calls for assimilation, uh, there are other tribes that see these uh, policies as a threat to their way of life. So you see for just to cite one example, the Battle of Little Bighorn occurs right towards the end of Grant's presidency, 
and is fundamentally rooted in the discovery of gold in the Black Hills and the U.S. government turning its back on the Treaty of Fort Laramie, which had established the Black Hills as permanently the possession of the Lakota, Dakota, and a couple other tribes that were uh, in that area. And only within a couple of years of the treaty being ratified, uh, the U.S. Army under George Custer discovers gold. And there's a mad dash of settlers in the U.S. Army uh, eventually gets to a point where they cannot stop the tide of settlers moving into the Black Hills. And when the tribes refuse to sell the Black Hills, uh, it eventually leads into a military conflict. And so um, I think when we look at Grant, it might speak to a larger challenge of historians in that, on the one hand, historians kind of look at theory. They look at ideas. They look at um, sort of proposed, proposed ideologies about the way the world should work. But on the other hand, we also study outcomes and consequences and, and policy put in action. And I think you can see where Grant's policies and his, well, I should say his, his philosophies and his ideas were genuine and wanting a better life and a better future for indigenous people. But at the same time, uh, the actual consequences of his policies still privilege westward expansion and still privilege a growing number of white settlers going into Western territories and at times removing lands uh, that rightfully belong, belong to indigenous tribes. So I don't use the G word lightly, but I think that when I use the term cultural genocide, uh, I'm arguing specifically that while I don't think Grant wanted a, a military genocide of complete extermination of uh, indigenous peoples, he did firmly believe that they had to assimilate to sort of white American mainstream, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture in order to survive and to become embedded within the larger American body politic. Do you think that had to do with deeply held beliefs in Grant? Or do you think that has to do with the politics at the time? Is he feeling the pressure? He didn't want to be a politician and he didn't right. like to play the politics game. Do you think he felt the pressure of that political game though once he got nominated and elected? Definitely. Uh, I think Grant, Grant was always very astute when it comes to politics. Uh, one thing you get from when he lives here in St. Louis in the 1850s is that he's reading the newspapers, he's paying attention to what's being discussed uh, current events wise. And there's even a letter Grant writes where he actually goes down to downtown St. Louis to hear political speeches. So Grant is always very in tune with what's happening politically, but at the same time, uh, he was like a lot of us, you know, he had his views on politics, but he didn't necessarily intend or even want to have an elected officer to necessarily be somebody to implement policies. Uh, so I think with Grant, uh, during the Civil War itself, in a way, as a general, you do have to be a politician because ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, if you don't get along with the president in Washington, D.C., you're not going to be in a job for very long. Uh, you can look at George McClellan and talk yeah, right. with him about answers for that. So Grant uh, really, in, in many ways, shows a very uh, astute understanding of Washington, D.C. politics and being able to work with President Lincoln during the war and understanding that, you know, Grant, he had his role as general, Lincoln had his role as president, and he was, he was going to do the best with the resources that the president gave him. And so when Grant takes office in 1869, it's true that he never held a political office and never held elected office before, 
But in terms of actual, you know, maybe small p politics, he'd been exposed to it for a very long time. Uh, and I will also say, too, that uh, going back to Brooke Simpson for a second, Brooke Simpson makes a compelling argument that Grant himself, he made a sort of a distinction between statesmen and politicians. Mm. Politicians are really looking, they're looking about out for themselves and their party. They're looking for partisan gain. They're looking for their own personal goals, whereas a statesman is truly committed to trying to look out what's best for the nation as a whole, looking out for the American people as a whole. So Grant, I don't think he had necessarily any grand philosophies necessarily. I think he's reacting to the politics of Reconstruction. I think he's listening to high uh, leaders within the Republican Party. And, uh, and I think he's trying to be as pragmatic as possible with his politics because he's trying his best to look like a statesman and not just a, a base politician only looking out for himself. So do you, it sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, perhaps you feel like Grant might have had some more political experience than people gave him credit for when he came into office, though he didn't hold an actual government position. He still played the politics game. Totally. Yeah, totally. I think so. And I think uh, just in general, we think of when we think of military leadership that later goes into politics, uh, you know, uh, Clausewitz famously argued that war is politics by another means. And I think there's a, a lot of relevance in that quote in the sense that uh, as, as a general, as a military leader, you really have to find a way to, to maneuver and manage a large number of soldiers. And so Grant himself, there's going to be more than a million soldiers under his command by the end of the Civil War. And so um, I think those experiences during the war uh, do, to a certain extent, allow him to, to gain a better understanding of how Washington, D.C. operates, I think, mm -hmm. and, uh, and just being able to um, work with civilian leadership. It, it's very, very important. And I think that's why sometimes we've seen generals like uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Zachary Taylor uh, get into the political world because, um, you know, they've had experience leading a large group of people, large organizations before. Uh, but then again, it is fair to ask whether or not those generals have always been successful presidents. Right. So that's a great one. Grant becomes president. He has some successful policies. We talked about a few of those, especially when it pertains to African-Americans. But he also has a lot of scandals. They're never quite linked to him. But the whiskey ring scandal, uh, there's several things that go on. Do you believe that perhaps not having a political post is actually what led to that? Was he too trusting? Uh, what? Why do you attribute these scandals going on under Grant's administration? Sure, there's there's two different things that I, I will highlight. One is that uh, while I do believe that Grant was in some sense, you know, playing politics or a politician during his generalship, um, I do think Grant uh, struggles to distinguish between the politics of generalship and the politics of Washington, D.C. Uh, and what I mean by that is, as a general, you know, Grant's going to make an order and that order is going to be enforced or you're out of the army, right? It's pretty straightforward. It's very, very much a hierarchy of command, a chain of command. Uh, in Washington, D.C., as president, Grant might have his own desires and initiatives that he wants to see for, but that doesn't mean that it's going to get done. Just because the president has something that he cares about uh, doesn't mean that Congress is going to care about it, right? Or that the Supreme Court is going to find it constitutional. And so I think Grant 
uh, really struggles to a certain extent. I think he struggles with trying to get uh, the players on his team on the same page, uh, the Republican Party. Uh, even though the Republicans have a strong supermajority in Congress during much of Grant's eight years in office, Grant is going to really struggle to rally the troops and keep everybody on the same page together because it's not a military hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, the elected leaders uh, in Congress, they, they don't, even if they're the same party, they don't have to follow Grant all the time. I would also say, too, that Grant himself is very personally honest and scrupulous, working very hard to uh, to be somebody who was uh, not seen as, as getting favors from politicians or doing anything that was not in the best interest of the country. But I think Grant's feeling was assuming, assuming that others around him were also personally honest and scrupulous. Uh, and, and so I think uh, to go to the whiskey ring scandal, I think that's a useful example. So uh, the short story is that um, alcohol companies, alcohol distributors around the country had to pay a tax on the alcohol they distribute. And back then, the tax was paid by putting a, you'd have to put a sticker on the barrel or the keg or what, whatever you're shipping out. You have to have a, st a stamp on it to verify that you had paid the tax on that alcohol. Um, so the scandal actually starts right out of here in St. Louis, where um, military leadership and uh, political leaders are going to get in this thing where they're basically getting government kickbacks. They're getting kickbacks from the alcohol companies to not pay those taxes, but they're still going to be putting those stickers on and paying off leaders to not have to pay those taxes. And so Orville Babcock had been on Grant's staff during the Civil War, and Grant appoints him to be his personal secretary, what we would call a chief of staff today. So Orville Babcock is a very trusted confidant of Grant. And while the evidence is not 100% conclusive, um, there are some very cryptic telegrams that Babcock wrote to some of the leaders of the Whiskey Ring scandal that really, uh, they, they kind of implicate Babcock and they give the impression that Babcock knew about this stuff and was participating in it. And so uh, the scandal, when it blows out of the newspapers and word gets out that Babcock has been possibly implicated in this, Grant is outraged. He thinks this is uh, this is uh, uh, an effort by his political enemies, both in the Republican and Democrat Party, to demean his presidency and to knock him down a few pe uh, pegs. And so Grant uh, really gets so defensive of Babcock that he actually agrees to do a deposition. Um, Grant had originally, because when, uh, when Babcock was part of the Whiskey Ring Sound, they were having a trial here in St. Louis at a federal courthouse here to determine uh, if any charges were going to be made against Babcock or anybody else in the whiskey ring sandal. Grant initially says, I'll go to St. Louis and I'll testify in court. His advisors said, no, do not do that. But Grant still agrees to do a deposition at the White House. So again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about contemporary politics too much here. Um, but this was a big debate uh, during the first uh, Trump impeachment where um, there were questions about whether Trump was going to take the stand or whether he should do a deposition uh, as a part of that trial. And, and so we see Grant being very defensive of Babcock and willing, willing to, to do that himself. Uh, and so unfortunately for Grant, this is, this is really kind of a bad look. This is a bad look. And Grant's critics say, you know, this is Grant just trying to look out for himself. And, uh, and really just at the end of the day, there, there really was a lot of um, corruption within the whiskey ring scandal. So on the one hand, 
<clears throat> there are genuine corruption scandals during Grant's presidency, and there are episodes that do much to tarnish Grant's reputation as president. I would stress, however, though, that you always have to be careful about those claims of corruption. What I mean by that is just because somebody says, oh, well, so-and-so is corrupt, that doesn't mean that it's automatically true. And part of the, uh, part of the reputation of Grant's presidency is premised on the idea that what Grant did in terms of promoting reconstruction and promoting civil rights and voting rights for African-Americans was itself corrupt. Mm -hmm. uh, you see Democrats campaigning on the idea that, listen, if you vote for a Republican, you're voting for what they would call at the time, you know, Negro equality or a black man's government. And if you vote Democrat, you're voting for a white man's government. So people who uh, are opposed to Grant in many cases, they just view the entire process of reconstruction as corrupt. So some of Grant's, uh, some of the charges against those around Grant um, are not always 100%, you know, foolproof, because sometimes it's really just uh, uh, complaints about Grant and his views on Reconstruction as well. Well, and you mentioned that Grant struggles, because as a president, everyone listens to him, but he has opponents in Congress, and a big opponent is Charles Sumner, uh, a real thorn in Grant's side. Definitely. Grant wants to annex Santa Domingo, and he's counting on Sumner, and Sumner falls through, and the whole deal falls through. So do you think, we talked about some of his high marks as president, some of the low points of his presidency. Do you think if he had been able to annex and add a new state to the United States that his legacy would have changed? Do you think it could have improved his legacy? What do you think it would have done to him? Boy, that's a, that's a really great question too. And, and just for context, so the Santa Domingo annexation plan. Um, so Santa Domingo is what we call today Dominican Republic. And so um, the, the government, the, the, the island of Santo Domingo for many, many years in the 19th century had all sorts of political instability. Um, it was what, at, at various points, it was controlled by Spain, France, and even Haiti itself had control of Santo Domingo at one point. And so um, the leader at the time when Grant is elected president, this guy named Bueno Ventura Baez actually appeals to Grant and says, hey, we would like to become part of the United States. We would like to seek the protection of America. And Grant is very intrigued by this, and he's intrigued by it for really uh, a number of reasons, but I'll point out three. One is that Grant views this as an economic opportunity. This is an opportunity to expand trade routes with South America, with Europe, uh, to expand America's global influence in trade by having a port at Santo Domingo and having an island uh, for shipping. Militarily, you can establish a Navy base in Santa Domingo. You can expand America's military presence and you can enforce the Monroe Doctrine. You can force the European nations out of Central America and include and, and increase your own sphere of influence by having a presence in the Caribbean. And Grant himself, very interestingly, uh, talks about the fact that he, he says that, that prejudice against African-Americans is wrong uh, and that by establishing Santa Domingo as a US state, it would essentially create a black state where black representatives would be in places of power in local government and in U.S. Congress as well. You'd have black senators from Santa Domingo. You'd have black representatives in Congress. And so black Southerners that are sort of under the yoke of uh, oppression in the South and the sharecropping system, in Grant's mind, an opportunity to move to Santa Domingo might offer a new and better uh, future for African-Americans if they were to emigrate to Santa Domingo. 
So no less than Frederick Douglass is very supportive of this idea of annexation of Santa Domingo uh, on, uh, largely on these very same grounds and that it's a win-win for the country as a whole and it's a win-win for African-Americans. And it's important to stress here too, sometimes historians uh, conflate the Santa Domingo, annex Domingo annexation with Lincoln's support for colonization. But this is not necessarily the same thing because under Grant's plan, this is a state with the same rights as any other state. And these are uh, these black Americans, they're American citizens. who have all the rights of American citizenship as opposed to moving to a new country like Liberia mm. under Lincoln's colonization plan. So in any case, Charles Sumner uh, does not like this move. And uh, he uses a couple different arguments. One, uh, he argues that an American presence in Santa Domingo would destabilize Haiti. So Haiti, of course, is the first, the world's first, uh, major, one of the world's first major black republics uh, in the early 19th century. And Sumner feels that a U.S. presence in San Domingo would uh, destabilize the Haitian government, and it might eventually lead to the U.S. or a different foreign country taking over Haiti. Uh, Sumner also does use some racial arguments, too. He argues that, um, that uh, he basically argues about the climate and the fact that you know, white Americans would not want to move to Santa Domingo and that uh, by, by nature that the Caribbean peoples could not assimilate into U.S. governance. Uh, another guy is Carl Schertz, a senator from Missouri here. Carl Schertz says that anybody moving to Santa Domingo would assimilate down rather than assimilating up if they came to the United States. So <clears throat> what I would argue is that uh, on the one hand, you know, Black Americans may have moved to Santa Domingo and this experiment in biracial democracy may have been quite successful. Uh, but on the other hand, once again, kind of similar to Grant's Native American policies, um, there's not a lot of consideration for what actual people in San Domingo thought about all of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of open questions about whether, uh, you know, immigrants from the United States, whether Black or white, would have been able to coexist. What would that have looked like with the Native uh, uh, Dominicans that are living in Santa Domingo. And I think um, that probably would have been a lot more difficult than a lot of people would have anticipated. And it, and it, and it would have been interesting to see if you know, the economic and military goals of the Grant administration would have been accomplished. So, um, and I would also say too, that in the long run, this ends up being very bad for Grant because it splits the Republican party. Uh, Grant, as I mentioned earlier, is a supermajority in Congress, but the supermajority is going to be badly divided over Santa Domingo. Um, when it was heard by the Senate, it, it uh, did not, you have to have two thirds majority uh, to pass a treaty in, in, uh, in the Senate, and only it was a 50 50 split on Santa Domingo annexation. And Grant is so outraged by this that um, he uses the patronage system to basically purge the government of anybody who supported a candidate that was against the Santa Domingo annexation. So Charles Sumner, using him as an example, um, Grant is going to fire the minister to Great Britain, who is very close to Sumner, on the grounds that Sumner opposed the uh, San Domingo annexation. So Grant's going to use his patronage uh, powers to basically try to purge the Republican Party of anybody close to Sumner. <laughs> yeah, well, he was not a fan of Sumner, so I don't, no. <laughs> I don't totally blame him there. But so that's kind of one aspect of Grant's foreign policy. And another aspect is the Alabama claim, something that's kind of often overlooked in Grant's presidency. So do you feel that this should have received more attention? Uh, perhaps Grant was a better statesman than he was given credit for. 
I think the Alabama claims are are really probably. I think they say a lot about Hamilton Fish, Grant's Secretary of State. Hamilton Fish is the only cabinet member who stays for the entire duration of Grant's eight years in office. And um, when we talk about influential Republicans who had Grant's ear, I think Hamilton Fish is one of those people. Now, Fish had been governor of New York before the Civil War, and so he'd been a very well-respected figure in uh, New York and in Republican politics. And so to just kind of set the context a little bit, the, the long story short, Great Britain uh, proclaimed neutrality in the American Civil War and claimed that they did not support either side in the war. Uh, but there will be, uh, the Confederacy will manage to have some ships constructed uh, in Great Britain, including the CSS Alabama. And this Confederate ship inflicts a lot of damage on, uh, on Union gunboats and Union ships during the Civil War. So some people, including Charles Sumner, uh, believe that once the Confederacy is defeated, now it's time to wage war with Great Britain. And then it was time to up the ante with Great Britain because even though they proclaimed neutrality, they, they, they sort of informally supported the Confederacy by constructing uh, ships and steamboats over in, in, in Great Britain. And so- Like a Lend-Lease Act situation. Exactly. And so Grant, you know, he, he's not looking for another war. He, he's seen the war up close and personal for four years and he's anxious to find a resolution to that. And I think that one of the particularly innovative aspects of these uh, debates is the fact that um, that there was arbitration that, that was heard in Geneva, Switzerland. Grant will send out representatives to Geneva to represent the government. So this real idea of arbitration and mediation and this idea that um, the government's going to use diplomacy to try to resolve these issues with Great Britain. And it ends up working out where Great Britain spends uh, pays several million dollars, I believe it was $15 million to the United States government for damages inflicted on boats during the Civil War. Uh, but I think a lot of this has to do that with the handiwork of Hamilton Fish and his ability to uh, work with people across the aisle and to negotiate uh, uh, um, a resolution that was a win for the United States without resorting to war. So Grant has this reputation uh, traditionally as a poor president, and we just touched on a lot of the major aspects of his presidency, the Civil Rights Act, Alabama claims, some of these different major events. So how do you feel Grant should be remembered as a president? Do you think he's been given an unjust treatment traditionally, uh, or do you feel that perhaps this assumption and, and view that he was a poor president is fair? Well, you know, it's a it's a very complicated question, but I think Grant, um, I think ultimately at the end of the day, in that moment, I think he was probably the best person for the job. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to stress that it's one thing to fight a war and to have a government during wartime, and it's entirely uh, other issue to run a government in times of peace, in times of rebuilding and reconstruction. And I think for Grant, many of the challenges he faced as president were, were simply unprecedented. There, were no, there was no blueprint. You know, there was no uh, easy answer in the US Constitution. Um, the Grant administration is the first administration that is tasked with collectively enforcing the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, completely remaking the federal government uh, into a uh, into a a government that is tasked with enforcing the civil rights of all Americans, and so um, 
Grant is trying to promote civil rights. He's trying to promote peace between the sections. And he's trying to get the economy up and running again so that the country can get back to, uh, you know, producing a, a producing prosperity for all, regardless of background. And it's very hard for me to look at the leadership at that time and to conclude that anybody else would have been better, a uh, better candidate in 1868. It's very hard. So on the one hand, I can, I can wholeheartedly acknowledge that Grant, to a certain extent, did not know what he was going to be getting into with Washington, D.C. politics, and that he was very naive uh, in trusting people like Orville Babcock uh, in positions of power within the government. Uh, and so I, I think there, you know, there, there are certainly criticisms to be made. And, and of course, with something like Grant's Indian policy, it's very tragic what happened uh, and, and continues a long line of injustices towards indigenous people in this country that continue to be remain unresolved today. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, I, I just feel like Grant on the whole uh, was an effective president and uh, provided leadership and a stability in a time where there was not a lot of either one of those things. Well, you mentioned that he's the perfect man uh, when he's inaugurated in 1869, but do you think had Lincoln not been assassinated, would he still have been that perfect man? Because it's it's hard to think. There's no better leader uh, for that from 1861 to 65 than Lincoln. Do you think Grant still would have followed in his footsteps had he not been assassinated? Yeah, that's another great what if question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Lincoln was, you know, he's a once in a lifetime, once in a millennium type of political leader. And so uh, it's hard to say that Grant would have been more qualified or more competent than Lincoln in the White House. Uh, having said that, though, I, I do think, uh, you know, Lincoln probably would have followed the precedent of two, uh, two terms in office. He would have been real, you know, he's reelected for a second term in 1864. And if you if you think about him fi finishing out that term, you know, there's still the question of who would have run in 1868. Uh, you know, Lincoln still would have would have left the White House at the same time. So logically, you know, you can see Grant still being the successor to Lincoln and being elected in 1868. Uh, unfortunately for history, Andrew Johnson uh, ends up, you know, being the one that fills the remainder of Lincoln's term uh, and greatly complicates Reconstruction and uh, and really sort of unintentionally forces Grant into this position. I should also add too that, that Grant himself. You know, not wanting that, not having these ambitions to be president, um, he reluctantly agrees to be president in part because of Andrew Johnson, because Johnson's policies, particularly his opposition to civil rights and his continued uh, sort of uh, uh, appeasing of former Confederates and basically trying to hand the keys back to former Confederates, you know, almost immediately after the war. Grant thinks that, you know, another civil war is going to break out. And so Grant, when he takes office, he talks about the fact that. You know, he's taking this position because he's trying to save the results of the war. What he means is he's trying to keep the union together and ensure that slavery has come to an end. And so Grant um, very reluctantly takes on this responsibility and really feels that he has to do it because he's trying to save the results of the war. I think that's fair, too, to, to have fear of that civil war because the South necessarily <laughs> wasn't done. They were just kind of exhausted at that point. But that ideology wasn't done. And right. that ideology after... The Civil War is something that kind of shapes Grant's legacy, right? We get the lost cause where he's a drunk, he's a butcher, he's a poor president. And that's something that prevails for a really long time. But in recent years, uh, with these books behind me, right, we have American Ulysses, 
We have Sharon Isles Grant. We have the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant by Dr. Calhoun. So do you feel that this reanalysis is fair or would you argue as some people do that it's rewriting history? I know Dr. Kurt Fields likes to say it's a reanalysis, not revisionist history, but there is that revisionist camp. So how do you feel about Grant's legacy shifting in, in recent years? Well, so um, I, I actually take a slightly different perspective on this question actually, because uh, first of all, I make a distinction between history and the past, quote unquote, the past. So what I mean by that is that history is a process. History is a field of study. And the past is sort of the, the evidence that we have at hand. So the past is collectively, you know, the, the primary source documents, the evidence we have to make sense of, of what happened at a given time. So as historians, our, our job is to research and interpret the past. So as scholars, we're always going back and revising previous interpretations. We're going back to see what previous historians had said about a particular moment in time. We're looking for new primary source documents that might uncover a new understanding. So the field of history to me is fundamentally revisionist. We're always revising the past. We're always going and re-examining our previous understandings of things. That's fundamental to the historical process, in my opinion. Uh, to put it, to, to just have an analogy here, when I go to the doctor's office today, I want, I want the latest medical knowledge. I want the latest medical procedures to be used to provide care for me. I don't want what was used in 1950, right? You don't want the, the 1863, just chop off a limb. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Yeah, I want my doctors to wash their hands before, right. you know, touching me, right? And so as historians, um, just because we have a new argument, it doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean it can't be challenged. But as historians, we're, we're always going back to try to enhance our understanding of the past so that we have a better understanding to, you know, uh, the, the concept of whether we can ever get to the, to the truth. You know, that's a larger philosophical debate, but I would like to think that as historians, um, we're, we're trying to get the story right. And, that, and that's, you know, that's how I feel my work with the National Park Service is that I'm just trying to get the story right. I'm just trying to make sure that, um, what we understand Ulysses S. Grant is, is reflective of what would have actually had at the time, given the, the limited evidence we have to make sense of that. So for Grant, I think much of what we're seeing is, is reflection of what happens in the present. Um, I, I, have the, I believe that the past shapes the present, but the present shapes the past. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that questions we have about the world today shape the sorts of questions we might have about history. So during the Jim Crow era, where it's assumed that racial segregation is appropriate and that uh, African-Americans are unfit for citizenship and voting rights, uh, it, you can see a logical connection to historians who are arguing that Reconstruction is a failure and that Grant's support for Black voting rights through the 15th Amendment is mistaken. We can also see today, though, that with the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and continued efforts today uh, on the civil rights front, that there's a renewed interest in trying to better understand Grant's relationship with civil rights during his presidency. So the, our, our understanding and appreciation of Grant's role in civil rights today is shaped by our concerns about civil rights in the world, in our country today. So I think that does a lot to explain new, more re-examinations of Grant's presidency. 
And I think it's particularly noteworthy that in the year 2000, uh, uh, the group of historians that works with C-SPAN every 10 years to rank the presidents, they had ranked Grant 33rd in the year 2000. And in 2020, uh, the, Grant moved up to 23rd. So he moved up 10 spots in the rankings and he didn't even do anything new, right? It was, it was historians, it was historians looking at what was going on in the world today and thinking about, uh, you know, some of the questions about Grant's role in civil rights that helped propel him 10 spots up the rankings. It was, it was what was going on in the world today that challenged historians to revise their understandings of the past. This could be very uncomfortable for people. You know, I learned this in school. This is my understanding. And the idea of historians coming in and challenging uh, previous understandings, it, it could be very jarring sometimes. But um, I, I think that Grant's presidency has rightly be, been reanalyzed to look at, uh, you know, the full thing, not just the story of corruption. And, uh, you know, and I think as historians, we, we rewrite history all the time. Yeah, well, and, and I mentioned Dr. Charles Calhoun, the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. And Dr. Fields mentioned when we spoke that this book is sort of a continuation of his memoirs. This is kind of that part three that unfortunately Ulysses never got to write. Right. Have you read the book? And if so, what are your opinions on it? Would you agree that it's sort of a continuation of his memoirs? Yeah, I think very highly of Charles Calhoun. I actually met him when the book came out and, and uh, I got to have a lot of great conversations with him. And and I got a signed copy of, of the book in my shelf here. So I, I think by far, uh, Charles Calhoun's book is the most comprehensive and detailed analysis of Grant's presidency. Uh, and I mean, it really gets into the weeds of everything. Everything we've talked about here, Santa Domingo, the Alabama claims, uh, Indian policy, 15th Amendment. I mean, Calhoun does a masterful job of getting into the fine details of all of that. Um, I... I don't know if it, I don't know if I would necessarily consider it a continuation of the memoirs because uh, with Grant's memoirs, it's his perspective on the Civil War. It's his perspective on what uh, happened in his lifetime. And Calhoun, uh, Calhoun is very concerned with not only highlighting Grant, but the entire administration, trying to understand. It's really in many ways a biography of the Grant administration. Uh, so looking at Hamilton Fish, looking at William Belknap, the Secretary of War, looking at uh, Columbus Delano, one of Grant's interior secretaries. And so I, I think in that sense, it is, it is an academic work that is looking to be more of a biography of an administration rather than Ulysses S. Grant's personal views on his presidency. Um, having said that, I think as I've tried to argue here, Grant's presidency is an embattled presidency. It's one of the most important insights of Calhoun is that, you know, from the very beginning, this was a very politically difficult time. And whatever Grant was going to do, there's going to be a large people of, of, opposed to what he wanted to do. Uh, and so I think Calhoun's book is super, super insightful because it's really a look at the entire administration as a whole, for sure. I'll also throw out, too, that um, a, a book that's a little bit shorter, but it's a useful introduction, is Frank Scaturro's President Grant Reconsidered. Uh, Frank Scaturro is a lawyer. He was a, a longtime volunteer at Grant's tomb in New York City. And in 1999, his book, President Grant Reconsidered, was really one of the first revisionist studies of Grant's presidency that really challenged a lot of those older assumptions about Grant's presidency. So Scaturro's book 
is only about 150 pages. So I would probably recommend starting with Scaturo, but then getting into Calhoun if you really want to get into the weeds. Yeah, thank you for that recommendation. So, so we've kind of done this broad, we kind of compacted this overview of Grant's presidency, right? This is something that could go on and on. What do you think his biggest accomplishment is? And what do you think as a park ranger, people should remember President Grant for? We have what we remember General Grant for, but what should we remember President Grant for? Well, I believe that probably the greatest accomplishment is the 15th Amendment, which is a very simple amendment. It bans racial discrimination at the polls based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, i.e. slavery. The 15th Amendment, uh, Grant himself called it the greatest civil change uh, in America since the founding of the country. So for Grant, uh, it wasn't necessarily the Emancipation Proclamation. It wasn't necessarily a given Civil War battle. So the greatest change to America is when the 15th Amendment was ratified. Uh, and I think the 15th Amendment uh, does much to highlight the fact that the Grant administration is really the first administration to enforce civil rights on a federal level. Um, prior to the Civil War, the federal government did not concern itself with civil rights. The federal government, within legal, the legal lexicon of the time, the term civil rights never really emerges until after the Civil War. So this notion that people are guaranteed rights to be protected by the federal government and not a state government, this is a new idea during Grant's presidency. And so the, the idea that any man, regardless of his background, could participate in American politics, could have his voice heard at the polls, this is of great importance to Grant. This is the, the embodiment of this idea of political equality that, uh, in Grant's mind, uh, lines up perfectly with the vision of the framers. Now, granted, again, prior to the Civil War, for the most part, it's only white men participating in elections. So this idea that not just African-Americans, but uh, immigrants to this country or uh, Asian-Americans could also participate in elections. Yeah, this, this, is really, this is really important stuff. So I think the 15th Amendment is probably the most enduring uh, positive aspect of Grant's presidency. And if anything, uh, that's to be lamented is that the 15th Amendment was so poorly enforced, it became basically a dead letter of the law uh, by the end of the 19th century with the rise of Jim Crow. Uh, Jim Crow is essentially a response to the Reconstruction era. It's a basically an attempt to overthrow the Reconstruction era. And unfortunately, the wording of the 15th Amendment, because it's based on race, color, and previous condition of servitude, it did not outlaw other things like poll taxes, grandfather clauses, or literacy tests. So, of course, we're going to see those mechanisms arising, uh, particularly in the South, to keep Black men from voting uh, because, uh, you know, technically they're not race-based restrictions. Of course, we know they were used in a race-based way uh, much of the time, although some poor whites were also excluded from the polls as well. Uh, but the 15th Amendment as a whole, uh, it, it, it carries a huge responsibility to the federal government to ensure that we have free and fair elections where anybody can vote. Of course, it did not allow women at the time, but we can see the spirit of the 15th Amendment continuing today in this idea that, um, you know, as American citizens, uh, you know, anybody 18 or has the right to vote. Yeah, and I think uh, for anyone listening, that is a, a thing to know about Grant that's largely overlooked, has been traditionally. We talked about how it's kind of coming back um, 
but seeing what he did for race, I do think is a major thing to remember him for. So are there places that our listeners can uh, follow you, contact you if they have questions, anything you would like to um, promote yourself with? <laughs> little sure, yeah. plug there. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I do try to, uh, you know, I, I, I'm active online and I, I try to kind of distinguish between my professional work and my own personal work. But um, if you if you don't come to St. Louis and don't come to Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site, uh, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. I, I, you know, I'm just mostly tweeting about history. I'm, I'm not particularly, you know, I'm not tweeting about what coffee I had this morning or anything <laughs> like that. But my username is uh, is Nick Sacco 55 on Twitter. Uh, so N-I-C-K-S-A-C-C-O-5-5. Uh, I do have a blog uh, where I write about, you know, some of these bigger questions of history. It's called Exploring the Past. Uh, if you type in Nick Sacco, Exploring the Past, it should pop up. I, I occasionally write for my blog. Uh, and then I also have, uh, I'm also an amateur uh, photographer and I restore uh, historic photos. So I restore and colorize historic photos and um, that's just a hobby I have on the side. So I have an Instagram page called History Beyond Black and White, where um, I restore old photos and uh, try to bring them in life by by adding color to them. So and there's a lot of divided opinions on colorizations, but I think they're super cool. I think they help us think about history in new ways. And I've, uh, you know, I, I've trained myself how to do that. So History Beyond Black and White, if you want to check out that on Instagram. Very cool. That's a whole other thing we could dive into. I love. Yes, I agree. I think that really does bring it to life. I got a nice Ulysses Grant poster in my classroom. That's a colorized one. So yes, uh, I agree with that. So is there anything else you would like to share uh, on Grant and his presidency? Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Boy, you know, it's just it's a relevant presidency. It's fascinating. But when we think about the relevance of different presidents to our own lives today, I think whether or not you view Ulysses S. Grant as a failure or as a success as president, um, a lot of the issues he was concerned about in his day, we are concerned about in our in our world today. So, uh, just the uh, you know Grant, it's not just the generalship; it's his relevance as president as well. So, just encouraging people to uh, to read about Grant, to visit Grant-related historic sites around the country, including Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site in St. Louis and. Uh, and just want to thank you, Andy, for the opportunity to join you today. It's It's been a lovely conversation, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your expertise, Nick. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Next week, we will be joined by Robert E. Lee himself. Well, actually, Paul Lewanski, who joins us as Robert E. Lee and discusses his life and his legacy. If you like this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share, and we hope to see you next week.